0: Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, a podcast of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme in which we explore the many ways in which religious narratives and ideas, practices and experiences inform some of the most crucial challenges facing our world today. The podcast is brought to you from the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge and I'm Malina Schäfers, a British Academy Newton International Fellow at the Faculty. This is the first episode of our new mini-series on Living with Religious Difference. We launched the series with an episode on how Muslim Senegalese migrants who live in Brazil navigate the urban landscape of Rio de Janeiro. My guest is Dr. Tilman Heil, a social anthropologist who is currently based at Mesila, the Maria Sibylla Merian Center Conviviality Inequality in Latin America, and also a principal investigator at the Global Self-Study Center at the University of Cologne. Together, we explore how religion can become a resource in the encounter with difference.
1: Imagine beautifully um, styled uh, trans. Sex workers in the most glittering outfits that you could imagine, and sort of a Senegalese coming in a long kaftan, basically, walking along the street. <laughs> you enter a sphere of what the religious belief gives them in terms of an ideology and outlook of how they want to live their life, and what they value, and how they value encounters, how they value other people, including the question of whether they, they feel entitled to judge or not to judge. Among my interlocutors, as they practice something that they entitle peaceful Islam, non-judgment is a major ethical, moral outlook.
0: I met Tillman to find out how religion becomes a resource for his Senegalese interlocutors in order to deal with the sometimes benign, sometimes disconcerting differences that they encounter in the highly complex and diverse setting of Rio de Janeiro. Tillman has conducted extensive ethnographic fieldwork in Senegal, Spain and Brazil and throughout his career he's been interested in the complex dynamics of how people from different backgrounds manage to live together. His previous project, which compares practices of conviviality in Senegal and Spain, was published last year as a monograph with Palgrave and is entitled Comparing Conviviality, Living with Difference in Casamance and Catalonia. Today, though, we will focus on his more recent work in Brazil.
1: I work in Latin America, the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. I've been working there with newcomers from West Africa and from Spain engaging with the viewpoints, the narratives of my interlocutors from these different parts of the world that have arrived to the city and try to understand it the best they can to make a living and to relate in one way or the other to the city. I've been trying to diversify the kinds of people I'm working with in Rio de Janeiro in order to break down any kind of preconceived groups So if we think of the Senegalese um, and Senegalese migration, you might think more closely to home about Senegalese that come to Europe as economic migrants who would work either in agriculture or as vendors on the streets or along the beaches. So quite a precarious migration in terms of socioeconomic background, superficially judged. And indeed, these are a few of my interlocutors in Rio de Janeiro as well. However, I've been also working with Senegalese who have basically the same background as I have. So they have gone to university, they have done master's degrees, they have done PhDs in Brazil, um, benefiting from a exchange or actually a scholarship program from Brazil for West Africans. So they went to Brazil in order to obtain um, further higher education there and they stayed they're mainly men, but not only. There's a number, a small number of Senegalese women that have in the first place joined their husbands, but nowadays there's also even Senegalese women who have gone by themselves or have been the first of a couple to migrate. It's interesting that in between sort of the vendors and also the academics, you can find a third group of self-declared professional art vendors for, of African art. So they would sell masks, sculptures,
0: so in what you described, there are a lot of elements of difference that intersect. So you describe a gender difference, you describe difference in terms of socioeconomic class, in terms of ideological political background, in terms of geographical origin, perhaps in terms of race. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the role of religion as one line of differentiation between these different amongst your interlocutors or between interlocutors and people in Brazil, for instance.
1: Let's think for a moment about um, Rio de Janeiro or Brazil as a highly complex locality in terms of religion. There is traditionally, at least since colonial times, a, a huge impact of Catholicism. However, ever since the last couple of decades or so, there's a huge impact of the evangelical Christian churches that and currently also in the political landscape have a huge impact. The uh, uh, mayor of Rio de Janeiro until very recently was actually an evangelical priest. You have all the Afro-Brazilian religions or Brazilian religions of African descent um, related to slavery and slave descendants that would practice religious cults related to the West African coast You'd also have, which is less known, quite an immigration from Lebanon, who have brought various forms of Islam also to Brazil, which makes that there's a couple of mosques also, or spaces for prayer, of Muslim prayer in, in Rio de Janeiro. And most recently then you have all kinds of different immigrants, including my interlocutors, who are for the most part, practicing Muslims of one of the Senegalese brotherhoods, the Murid Brotherhood, um, which is one of the four big brotherhoods of Senegal, who have come oftentimes also using religious networks in order to organize their migration and who dedicate quite a lot of energy in order to build up religious structures, religiously connotated community structures among their fellow believers in order to organize local trade, organize their living, help each other's out, structures of solidarity filtered through religious community structures as well.
0: I wonder if you could say a little bit more about, so if we focus on your Senegalese interlocutors, who you said, if I understood correctly, they're, most of them are from one brotherhood. So I was wondering how the fact that they belong to this brotherhood, how that influences the way in which they encounter this urban society in Rio de Janeiro.
1: That's a, a question that requires to think along a number of different layers, maybe. The first layer might be through the transnationalism, to start from there again. So as I said, their religious structures and their religious backgrounds and being among co-believers massively influences the collective resources they have at hand in order to approach a new place such as Rio de Janeiro, be it resources for the initial um, migration but then also immediately while in the place they can rely on the community structures that have been built very early on when there were very few Senegalese and they have grown ever since. So it becomes uh, quite an autonomous network of support of an infrastructure, as I argue, that serves them in order to create this life within this new locality. So that sounds like a story that is happening rather as detached from the locality. But then you could think of a second layer where you could think of Friday prayers, for example, when they seek out the major places of muslim worship in order to pray alongside other believers uh, which is the moment when they would encounter the sunni mosque that's nowadays located in the northern zone which is a highly complex space of a lot of believers from different origins the president of the association that runs the place he is from egypt but then we're still like sort of in the sub world of muslim believers now if we think of then the encounter with the overall city population, or the city as such, and what the city stands for, it is, becomes very interesting because you enter a sphere of what the religious belief does with my interlocutors, or what it gives them in terms of an ideology, and outlook of how they want to live a life, and what they value, and how they value encounters, how they value other people, how they value other people prax- people's practices including the question of whether they feel entitled to judge or not to judge others. Among my interlocutors, as they practice something that they entitle peaceful Islam, non-judgment is a major ethical, moral outlook that is oftentimes referred to when it comes to practices in the city that they very difficultly relate to. For example, the access of nudity in the city along the beaches, it being a tropical city where the body is exposed there is a certain cult of the male and the female body it would also relate then to diverse sexual practices that are being perceived in the relative proximity where my interlocutors live which are city centers but in general more marginal spaces within the city where also for example sex work would happen of both of both genders men and women and um, Travis being biologically male cross-dressers. These are encounters that require from my interlocutors quite deep reflections on what is desirable company, what is desirable behavior, what is theoretically also good behavior or bad behavior that registers in which these encounters happen, such as the emotional impact such encounters have on my interlocutors, the insecurities, the surprise at times, the quite frank um, limitations of understanding that are happening.
0: Can you explain that a little bit more? So if I understood you correctly, in these neighborhoods you would have, where your interlocutors from Senegal often live, you know, they come across Brazilian sex workers, some of whom cross-dress. And so How do these encounters happen? Do they happen in the street? Do they happen elsewhere? And what kind of spaces do they happen?
1: So let's picture, for example, the neighbourhood within which the Senegalese have set up over the last decade or so, their prayer room, which is the neighbouring city of Rio de Janeiro, Niterói. It's just across the the bay with a ferry, you get there in 20 minutes. It's a city centre, it's quite a commercial area, so it's very busy during daytime and very quiet at nighttime. And you yeah, would have two main streets. On one street you'd have female sex workers, and on the other one you'd have trans sex workers. And the prayer room would, was at the time on the street of the female sex workers, including some little hotels, hourly hotels that could be rented out by sex workers and their clients. And... So in the vicinity also, a lot of the flats in which my interlocutors, the Senegalese, would live were located. So in order to get, while they were working during the day, and in order to get to their prayer room for the nightly prayers and meetings, they would pass these streets and were would be empty streets and the only people on the streets would be some of my Senegalese male interlocutors or also female interlocutors. So these male interlocutors mainly would pass by these sex workers and it'd be a a general play the sex workers were looking for customers so they were offering in all kinds of ways their services and trying to address my interlocutors and trying to tease them, to joke with them, body language could be very explicit also so imagine beautifully styled trans sex workers in the most glittering outfits that you could imagine and sort of a Senegalese coming in a long kaftan basically walking along the street and trying to well develop a strategy in order to get by. So and that getting by means a lot of things. That could either try ignore to ignore them, to smile back at them, to laugh, or to make a comment back, or to be very insecure and just basically get passed by as quickly as possible. They would explain to me who these people were. So. They would explain to me, "Oh, look at these people! Look at what they're doing! So incomprehensible! Um, they really, every single time, they're hitting on me! Like, how do I react to this?" Now, they, I, at the beginning, I didn't know it's all. It seems a lot of freedom here, but this freedom is kind of weird because it doesn't combine well with my, with my religion and um, what am I supposed to do? And then all of this is being said that my Senegalese are very much aware that they are in a foreign country where they need or want to stay out of trouble. So in this staying out of trouble restricts a lot of the interactions and is a framework along which they organize their everyday activities.
0: Being more familiar with the discourses about migrants from Muslim-majority countries that are prevalent in Europe, I asked Tuman about how Islam is perceived in Brazil. In Europe, migrants of Muslim background are often faulted for not being quote-unquote Liberal enough when it comes to sexuality, particularly where homosexual practices are concerned. So, do Senegalese migrants in Brazil encounter similar discourses? This very discourse appears very clearly in a juxtaposition
1: of sort of a Western reading of Islam and um, how they want to be perceived and understood. So, they're very much aware of, well you could call, even call it as it has been, a pinkwashing of the nation or the queer necropolitics, right? that they're very much aware how the co-optation of a otherwise marginalized queer subject, be it the gay man or the cheese is actually a strategy in order to other, the, the Muslim other.
0: To briefly interject here, queer necropolitics, which Tillman just mentioned, is a term coined by Jasbir Puar to describe how racism and LGBTQ plus activism often intersect. After 9-11 in particular, Muslims have in many places come to be portrayed as homophobic, while the West is seen as naturally gay-friendly, conveniently painting over forms of homophobia that are firmly rooted in Western societies. As Poor argues, LGBTQ politics in this way becomes complicit with declaring certain lives less valuable and ultimately abandoning them to social or literal death.
1: My interlocutors are very much aware of it and are very keen on portraying a different kind of Islam that has at least two dimensions in in that debate, which is one that is structured around a genuinely tolerant or respectful Islam that it practices non-judgment and basically buys into this narrative that the only one who is allowed to judge is God alone, and so they have to only practice their own sort of Cultivating their own self and being good Muslims means they themselves practicing and not judging others and leaving the others to their own sort of progress in their habit.
0: You were describing how your interlocutors are very much aware of the kind of stereotypes that exist vis-a-vis Islam and Muslims. And the fact that there is this perception that Muslims, you know, are othered because of the way in which they approach certain forms of sexuality. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how in Brazil this kind of discourse plays out. And and sort of related is the question, so where do your interlocutors pick up this awareness? I mean, how do they become aware, aware of these discourses that circulate?
1: These are people that are placed within really quite the global stretching networks, and so they pick up on a lot of these dimensions through all kinds of channels. Um, social media certainly is a massive dimension along which these information flow. Certainly, a lot of them are very well aware of what happens discursively in Europe through religious networks, but also family networks, etc. Some of them have passed through Europe, so have had this previous migration experience. Now, Brazil is a not only a religiously very highly stratified and complex nation, but it's also in all kinds of other dimensions, very multiple. So, the urban parts of Brazil very much define as Western. So you have a considerable middle class of European descent that since the 1970s would have gone onto the streets not just against the military dictatorship to fight for democratization but also for the rights of women and gay men at the time but by now this having been sort of a mobilization around LGBT rights in Brazil so you have all kinds of government structures that would address gendered violence and you'd have for example the gay partnership that would that's legalized it intersects with feminism it intersects also in part with the afro brazilian fights for um, liberal rights and equality at the same time you have a massive evangelical presence that is all but known for being very tolerant and that um, massively combats all of this so there, there were these huge debates on for example the the gay cure that were offered by these churches or the gay, the gay kit that the current president was blaming the previous government and some state governments for be introducing into the schools in order to educate their children as homosexuals having said that i think it's worthwhile to remember that in rio in its particular geography you have quite a visible middle class, very homo nationalist, homo normative, gay culture along certain stretches of the beaches, which are some of the stretches that some of my interlocutors avoid in order to not get into contact, and others very much exploit as a possible market for the goods that they sell along the beaches.
0: Homo nationalism is yet another term coined by Jasper Poor. Similar to Queer Necropolitics, it describes how LGBTQ rights and equality are used to legitimize racist and xenophobic political attitudes. Homo-nationalism celebrates Western nations as gay-friendly and therefore liberal and modern and describes opposition to LGBTQ rights onto a racialized, often Muslim-other. Against this backdrop, I asked Tillman about the relations between black Senegalese migrants and Afro-Brazilian communities, and what role religious affiliation might play in these relations.
1: Now concerning the Brazilian black population and my West African interlocutors who are black, it is an interesting encounter that is intersected by so many questions, religion just being one. In religious terms, you wouldn't find practicing Muslims among the Afro-Brazilians. The Muslims you'd have in Brazil... They would be, as I said, from Lebanon and Syria. And they would actually classify within racial classification in Brazil as white. So they'd be actually quite part of the racially privileged. Now, my West African interlocutors, if at all, they would be identified with Afro-Brazilians. But even that doesn't always work out so well, now that there is a conscience among the general population that has grown um, for recent African immigration, there's an increasing awareness of the blackness of Africans that is even blacker than the Brazilian blacks. So there's discrimination, actually, also on the basis of tone, skin tones, and in that um, kind of hierarchy, my West African interlocutors will always be placed at the very bottom end because they tend to be very dark. However, then, my West African interlocutors, if if anything, you could say that they are quite proud West Africans and proud Black people also within these more recent discourses on renewed decolonization and the necritude ideas of Senghor, the first president of Senegal, for example, that exist in fragments as common knowledge among my interlocutors. And that would identify then also the relations and possibilities that are forged or not to the Afro-Brazilians. Last but not least, I think it's worthwhile to point out how there are, on an individual basis, these solidarities forged among Black Afro-Brazilians and recently arrived West Africans. And they have all kinds of dimensions. They can be in a network of black entrepreneurs, for example, or there was the possibility of there being graves of slaves that were Muslims in one of the memorial sites of the slave trade in Rio de Janeiro. So my West African interlocutors went even and performed some some of the ritual prayers and recitals of the of the Murid, the Murid leader um, in order to commemorate the discovery and that site, which is an interesting, I think, dimension to explore further in order to see just how, despite massive differences regarding religion, how there is strategic solidarities or solidarities being forged around different topics.
0: When Tillman talked about his Senegalese interlocutors trying to refrain from morally judging others, including Brazilian sex workers and cross-dressers that they encounter in their neighborhood, I wondered how this relates to distinctions between public and private space. Some of the literature on the anthropology of Islam has suggested that a distinction between private and public that would locate religion in the private sphere is historically quite foreign to Muslim-majority countries, where Islam has rather been seen as a moral framework for the governing of private and public life. So how might we see these discussions through the lens of Tillman's research?
1: The non-judgment is actually not something that's confined to the the public or the private. The public and private didn't really enter into that debate among my interlocutors. It's, It's more sort of, it has a different genealogy or trajectory, if you wish, as they explain In simple words, they would say, well, see, um, the jihad for conversion has ended, basically, and the only jihad that is left is the greater jihad, which is the inner jihad, which is self-cultivation. And that is um, what we have been told, and thus we don't need to try to intervene in the lives of others anymore, but actually the task that we are being faced with is this inner cultivation of the, the good moral self, and that is basically... As I understood it, at least from how they portrayed it, very much an individual practice. And that's where the individuality of it comes into the play. But still, I find it interesting to think along the lines of how the narrative that I'm presented with or has left particular traces in West Africa, be it the inter-religious affordances that the, the, the Senegalese space has on offer in terms of dialogues that happen among. Christians and Muslims uh, mainly sidelining somewhat the so-called traditional African religions um, it certainly features quite nicely within the national narrative also of Senegal as being sort of a nation where sort of religious leaders and intellectual elite such as single were' all sort of promoting a peaceful decolonization which goes into the same direction so this, The claim to a peaceful subject position has various origins.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Religion and Global Challenges, about the ways in which religious affiliation and belief form part of the moral infrastructure through which Senegalese migrants in Brazil encounter a new, sometimes bewildering society. For more, tune into our next episode and check out further resources on the website of the Cambridge Interfaith Program at interfaith.cam.ac.uk.